Welcome to the Practice Podcast, conversations probing the nature of practice. I'm your host, Dave Firon. I just finished a conversation with someone who I met <laughs> just a few moments before I turned on the recording. He's in Australia. I'm in a little town in Connecticut. We had the conversation you're about to hear. It was so rich. There's so many aspects of what he is, his passion to understand individual behavior in organization and the influence a person can have as which we'll call the leadership influence. This very same thing that Peter Vale and I uh, have uh, had in as common cause. And there it was, you know, if Peter had been on this call, which I dearly wish he could have been, uh, he would have been right at it. And this whole thing would have gone on far more than an hour because we'd just say, what about this? And have you thought of that? It was a great conversation. Uh, and I'm so excited for you to hear uh, Don Danoon with a lovely Australian accent. Well, folks, I, I think uh, I've reached as about as far as I can humanly reach to have a conversation with this very interesting uh, colleague, soon to be colleague, as we just got acquainted moments ago, Donald or Don Danoon. Uh, he's in Australia and I'm not. <laughs> I'm here in, in uh, the northeast corner of the United States. So it, why, why are we spanning this gap? Well, it's because as, as I have with several other organization development change leadership uh, consulting practitioners, I, I find them in, on LinkedIn and I see what they're saying. I look at their profile and I think uh, this, is a, this person is living out uh, some work uh, and experiencing it in ways that real, really could reveal something more about the nature of practice. That's my quest. Uh, Don is an independent consultant, and we're going to hear as we get into our conversation uh, quite a bit about what it takes these days, no matter where you are in the world, to maintain yourself as an independent consultant and therefore be able to uh, be a broker of ideas as well as a creator of ideas. So, uh, Donald, welcome. Thanks, Dave. It's a pleasure to be with you and to be, um, yes, spanning continents and talking about things dear to both our hearts. And for me, uh, you know, for over 20 years, I've had a deep passion about leadership as a practice. And it still mm -hmm. remains a largely novel idea because we get most organisations, uh, many scholars are caught up in fairly conventional ideas about the leader. You know, the leader as a leader. person with certain attributes <laughs> yeah. or a particular role. And it's presumed that if you're a leader, then you're doing leadership and that mm. people who aren't leaders don't do leadership. And, you know, that's basically it. <laughs> and I think that idea, that whole way of thinking is deeply problematic. So there we are. Well, no, it's a wonderful concurrence because this is what used to bug Peter Vale when I started working with him years ago, first as a student. And right in the, the bulk of the book that I'm working on now of his notes, uh, we talk about leadership as practice, as well as the practice of leadership. But he also, we also have what we call a big P for practice, meaning 
almost anyone who is seriously pursuing results on a long over a long period of time is more in a state of practice than you know in a reactionary whatever you know comes yep. my way kind of life that intentionality and my hunch is already from what you've said that anyone can lead well yep so i would uh when we use the word lead commonly it's taken to refer to being out front or being in charge of mm -hmm. whereas for me leadership is a meaning making process uh you know about building a shared sense of a preferred future and a common understanding of where we are now and some ideas and action about how to get from here to there so mm. it's not necessarily the case that one has a, a position of authority that one is leading in the conventional sense one might be you know a member of a team but with a different take on what needs to be going on mm -hmm. so it's possible to make leadership intervention regardless of one's authority and and i differentiate between leadership interventions and management interventions which are yeah. more about uh, well we can talk about that later but dealing with concrete phenomena and kind mm -hmm. of getting stuff done achieving tasks and using your authority and essentially approaching problems in a fairly technical way whereas right. yeah leadership kind of goes deeper and, and so the, the making of shared meanings, which can be initiated by anyone in yep. the moment when they uh, see uh, some kind of a opportunity or a threat, you know, in this broader sense. And, hmm. uh, and while others may be occupied thinking about something else, that's the kind of person at that moment who said, huh, now just, just a minute, let's, could we just stop a minute and let's have you thought of it this way or i'm yeah. beginning to think of it this way so do you see it as done as emerging in the flow of yeah. conversation absolutely dave emerging in the flow of conversation and you described it as an in the moment activity which is exactly mm. what it is so one can make a, a leadership intervention that might be you know of a minute's duration <laughs> punctuating the flow of a conversation asking a different question suggesting people you know look at things differently offering a reframing so that's why I think of leadership as a practice, because this stuff is hard to do. It requires mm. intentionality. It requires presence. It requires being mindful. It requires connecting with people relationally. These are not simply technical skills, and you can't pick them up from reading a book. You've got to work at them over a period. Mm -hmm. You've got to reflect on your experience and you know try different approaches. So it's it's definitely a practice like you know, any other field of practice in some yeah. way. Yeah, Deve developing a, a high level of proficiency in that regard, wherever you are in kind of, of and, you know, formal or even informal groupings where there are several people. And, and, and it's in those moments, the person who has become more practiced and proficient will be the person of the hour in a way. Uh, and I'm thinking of the students that I taught for Know, almost 50 years, most always in our public universities and colleges, and almost all of them uh, coming from what we would call the working classes. So they, they, they hadn't had a lot of uh, the kind of uh, customary experience in being influential. They didn't come from privilege or influential uh, families. Uh, and, and yet what I saw in every one of them, without exception, uh, was that that spark when depending on how I engage them of, of thought, like, 
oh, wait a minute, yeah. you know, and if, if I, yeah. when I could see that, I don't care who it was in my class, then I, I said, what, you have a thought there. And now the next part was, in terms of persistency, was overcoming shyness, overcoming uh, what seemed to be like a little bit of self-esteem problem and just say, well, I, I was just, no, please, let's talk. And then creating an environment with the class where anyone will be listened to. So I'm yeah, kind of, yeah. I'm not just bragging. I think I'm putting it in the context where I've seen what you are looking at. And I also believe that I could have done a whole lot more in building that capacity along with the traditional, um, you know, recognition of theory and ability to write and, you know, mm. insightfully and all that. But that, that comfort uh, and confidence of being in those moments and while looking around to see if anyone else saw what you see, go right ahead and have the courage to say, I really don't, I, I think there's a better way of looking yeah. at this. Now I'm going to give you a chance to get right to your obru, if I pronounced it correctly. Yeah, obrio. Yeah. because there it is. You know, it's it's in that moment that you make the observation, the O, uh, that could be the end right there. I see it, but I'm yeah. I'm not going to do a thing about it. And now take us through that model a little bit because that's yeah. Be so nice the, the Obreo model, it's O B R E A U. The O B stands for observation. The R E stands for reasonableness, um, presuming others are reasonable in that moment. And uh, the A U is for authenticity. And the so the Obreo model is a it was kind of developed as a tool to support leadership action or intervention, but it has potentially broader applications beyond leadership. And this goes to broader questions of practice, you know, so a mentor giving feedback to a mentee on how they're handling something. If I can give you a practical example, just from yesterday. So yesterday sure. in a coaching session, uh, I was talking to a hospital scientist who had overheard a senior hospital scientist, and this is in a large teaching hospital, speaking to a scientist, an early career scientist in a smaller hospital is kind of a satellite hospital to this bigger one. And the uh, the conversation my colleague overheard was something like, well, why did you do it that way? You should have known better than that. You know, that was Ooh. a pretty silly thing to do. Ooh, and ouch. So, yeah, ouch. So the, very commonly what happens when people are guiding others around practice, they're speaking from interpretation, you know, they're reacting to what they've heard. Whereas observation would go back more to, I've, I've heard you say you have a difficulty with X, you know, let, let me learn more about that or understand, you know, what, what the issue is. Um, if we think about uh, the, the reasonableness leg um, of Obrio, that's a kind of counterpoint to judging. So the, uh, the senior scientist might not have said so directly, but they are likely thinking at this time, you know, this person's an idiot or a fool or misguided or incompetent. <laughs> but the reasonableness piece invites us to be, again, very present. So the whole thing is about mindful action and to tune in to what might have been going on for that early career scientist in the smaller hospital when they kind of phoned up seeking some information. So perhaps they were struggling with something they didn't understand or they were caught in a pressured situation and you know needed to make a choice they were reaching out for help they perhaps felt a bit vulnerable mm -hmm. and so the challenge for the senior scientist might have been to recognize look i presume you're calling me because 
you've got a serious issue there and it's mm -hmm. kind of you know it's, it's difficult for you so let's kind of you know we'll deal with that uh, as we can so then we come to the authenticity leg which is the what the senior scientist says about their own their own situation and this is a bit of an antidote to the tendency to to avoid conversations to dance around you talked about the shyness before yeah. it's so often that people in organizations students in universities they avoid stepping into conversations that might be troublesome because they're worried that you know they won't be heard well or they'll be they'll say the wrong thing or people will use what they say against them yeah so we think it, yeah. yeah we think it's easier to base on them so if we go back to the senior scientist perhaps the authenticity was around like you know this is the fourth call i've had on things like this today you know i'm, I'm trying to do my work it's a struggle i hear you need help you know, perhaps next time, could I ask that you look in the procedure manual where you'll find the answer to the question you've just asked. But by all means, if you've done that and you're still struggling, you know, give me a call. I want to be helpful, but, you know, I have to balance this with other things. So, like that. yeah, it's that sort of presence of mind to just slow down, work through the, you know, starting with the what you can see directly, the evidence, the data, rather than the interpretation hold your judgment and pivot to presuming that they've got something going on that makes sense for them in that moment, and then come back to what's true for you. And it's not just your logic or your business case, your, your analysis, it's something from the heart as well, you know, exactly. something of your person, something of an emotional connection. You know, I'm a bit frustrated about this or whatever it is, because it's that, you know, it's the emotional connection that binds us as humans and no it's question. so powerful. Mm. Yeah. No, that's a great example, and it's becoming more clear to me all the time. And I'm, I'm looking uh, at that same conversation that you exhibited uh, for a moment. You think within that um, very short exchange, when there was a practice of leading going on, where leading did or did not happen because of the way they were conversing. Yep. So in that in that interaction. The, the senior person was really relying on their authority. Mm. Uh, they were probably thinking about a technical fix to the thing and focusing on, you know, the, the problem the person had named and that the, the, there's a procedural manual that actually mm -hmm. has this information in it. Yeah, so they're in, what I'd call, they're in what I'd call, now they're leading in the sense they are the senior person, but they're in charge, they're the authority, but they're in what I'd call management mode at that moment. Mm -hmm. If they'd been in leadership mode, it would have been more relational, more exploratory, more open-ended. They'd exhibit more curiosity about what could have been going on for the other person. Um, and they'd be seeking perhaps to, you know, to think about a, what change might be possible here. You know, is there something about the dynamic that we, yeah. we might shift here? Yeah. And yeah. You, it could even go to larger questions. So there's a there's an issue not just between this larger hospital and the satellite hospitals around it, but there's a dynamic between them that the, the satellite hospitals think the big hospital is dominant, calls all the shots, doesn't listen to the concerns of the small ones. Mm -hmm. Some people in the bigger hospital want to change that dynamic and sort of make mm -hmm. it more collegial. So there would have been an opportunity to potentially exercise some leadership in that moment, but the senior scientist was understandably caught up with task concerns you know i'm trying to get things done and that's fine and that has to happen i'm not saying it doesn't but it's just that there is potentially 
the scope for choice in that moment about how they intervene. And so there's a coaching and executive and, and a development uh, need at the, at the senior level in your work. We're uh, all human, you know, but in, I would expect that someone who has that much authority and responsibility would be open to hearing the analysis you just gave and then looking at the model and thinking ahead and thinking, hmm, because right away I'm thinking from the standpoint of organization uh, development, if that conversation had gone as you uh, laid out with um, Obrio, Obrio, uh, there's a lesson that could have been learned that that meeting maker called the guy out in the satellite could say, well, thank you for that one. But let me just mention one more thing. Now that we're talking, mm. the, the supply line is breaking down or uh, we, uh, you know, we're, we're, exi- we're finding uh, a staffing shortage so that uh, I was, I was kind of pressed to even get this question out to you. So a few more uh, ways of getting a, a sense firsthand from the person who's out there in the satellite what's going on out there not all yeah. bad things some good things like oh by the way you know we, so that extra minute and a half or two that yeah. could have come about in the meaning sense making sense that you described could exactly. be organization intelligence which yeah. i believe is the manager's responsibility to gather and to process so he or she the senior scientist may have missed a very significant organizational learning moment because yeah, quite of so and yeah. I, I like that, that you've sort of hit on the, the learning point today because to me, leadership is a learning process. Oh, yeah. It is emergent because it, it, it's about discovery and, you know, in the moment, finding out more about what's going on in the satellite hospital, what are the dynamics between the two hospitals. Yeah. As you say, there is there's definitely that opportunity there. But so often we're kind of socialised to value, you know, task completion, meeting the KPIs, and, you know, people often say, I don't have time for this work. You know, it's too complex. It's too difficult. Everything's crazy whole... here. How many, even in yeah. Australia, I must hear, it's crazy here right now. I, I mean, yeah. so that those are the, I think the uh, smoke screens that people put up so that they don't have to have these kind of uh, more um, grounded conversations. <laughs> well, well, absolutely. That's, that's right. And it be, it's because these conversations do, um, they give rise to threat, defensiveness, anxiety, and we are really taught not to go there. You know, there's, there's all these things, you know, folkloric expressions like if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. Oh, you know, yeah. We, yeah. We're, we're constantly sort of reinforced that we should, you know, we should be positive, we should be uplifting, we never should talk about difficult stuff. And mm-hmm. the whole, I mean, even in organisational behaviour, the whole um positive organization piece, which I'm sure has lots of benefits, but we need to be able to talk about what's difficult and what's uncomfortable, but Mm -hmm. not do it in a way that goes straight into problem solving or or Mm -hmm. trying to analyze the problem. If we simply mindfully notice, you know, without judgment, without evaluation, and just share data and then explore that. Observation again, we're back to the O. You see what I see. Yeah. Yeah, exactly making contestable what we see and inviting other other viewpoints on that and i guess i'm like you dave i'm fascinated in the organizational dimensions of this sort of work yeah but um organizations being complex beasts as they are it's it's not easy to get this sort of thing going at scale 
Um, so my starting point is really with individuals and working outwardly from them. But but this does have a lot of application in a team context as well. Yeah. So you know, working with senior teams, executive teams on on their dynamics and the changes they're trying to bring about, often they're reacting to each other. You know, as Chris Argerus would have said, they're caught up in all sorts of defensive routines. Yeah, single loops, yeah. <laughs> single loop learning. Yeah. They're not doing that deeper double loop exploratory conversation. Yeah. So it's it's an it's a it's a theme that's been in uh, our combined fields for decades and decades, starting yeah, yeah. back with uh, some of those thinkers like Kurt Lewin and others who were uh, who felt that there was something that uh, about um, change uh, to look at, and all, and then you could look at it at the individual, the, the group, or, or the organization, society level. The yeah. one thing that I think does, you know, cut through all of that and to the point you're you're making about issues is change either is a result of people uh, genuinely addressing and working out solutions to an issue or it's the opposite. They're reacting to an issue that yeah. was not well disclosed and is coming at them at, and, and putting them in, a, in a, the wrong emotional state. So there's a there's, what what do you, what do you feel is your uh, connection to the issue of change? Well, um, I, I love that, that you refer to issues because issues for me are the starting point for leadership work. Now, issues, you know, it's not that they have an objective reality because they're seen, you know, differently, defined differently even by, by the players involved. But the starting point is what's the issue that concerns me now and, you know, and what's, what's the data about that issue? I find troubling, or for an organisation, you know, for a senior group to, to think about what are the issues that concern us and how do we view those differently and what's the data we find troubling? Because so often what I find with senior teams is they're, you know, they're focused on the next three-year, five-year, ten-year, whatever it is, plan, mm -hmm. and the plan is usually about doing stuff. You know, it's enhancing our engagement with customers or mm -hmm. strengthening the connection with stuff. Mm -hmm. It's always about improving something, but but it's rare that the organisation or the senior team actually nominates, well, what is, what's the base that we're improving from, changing customer relationships yeah, from? Yeah, we don't yeah. talk about the present. We don't talk about the, the data about the present because to do that is scary yeah, I guess because implicitly, if we're not doing all that well, then there's a sort of threat to how fault, are we as a fault team? will be found. You know, <laughs> if you're exactly. looking at, I mean, who, who, who at this moment, you or I, can't find something that someone is going to say, "Oh, did you remember to put the dishes away, Dave?" <laughs> and I go, "Oh." So the simples or the most grand things, but I, I want to focus on that notion of issue. How would you operationally define issue? Uh, an issue is a problem that doesn't have a single technical resolution that can't be can't be tackled, you know, through one line of work or one line of intervention to get a uh, you know a for sure outcome. An issue is uh, seen by different stakeholders differently. It's dynamic, it's unfolding, it's not mm -hmm. the one thing, you know, in an ongoing way. It's, it looks mm -hmm. this way one day, it looks that way the next day. Um, 
Yeah, it's definitely contentious. There's emotional heat around it. Mm -hmm. um, people feel strongly. There might even be a level of silence about it. An issue mm -hmm. might be, you know, undiscussed. Yeah. You know, the old elephant in the room thing. The lumps under the rug, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I like the way you've defined that. I appreciate it. And I think my listeners will too, because uh, if it's not an issue, if you arrive at a point in time, individually or as a group, and you know quite well what's coming next, yeah. and you start to see a little bit of a, maybe a little doubt, but you go ahead and use the routine that worked. Yeah, uh, and indeed. from a pragmatic sense, you test it, and hey, it works. So that's done. Yeah. So we move on, but then the next round of whatever's coming is is bigger than that, and not one mind or even one routine gets around it. So, in a way, that's the beginning of some invention as well, isn't it, Don? That is, we need we need an either new routine or we need to update the old one. But now, yeah. going back to your point about improvement for improvement's sake, we're now back at why to improve because we have an yeah, issue. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I guess that brings us to another element of leadership, which is purpose, mm. which is, you know, why are we in this? What's the difference we're trying to make? What do we aspire mm -hmm. to? What what counts, mm -hmm. and also vision, which is what would this desired result actually look like? How would it be manifest if we were able to bring it about? And what's the shift that that entails from where we are now? You know, yeah. what is this a difference that's worth doing something about? Yeah. Uh, have we framed it in a way that's actionable, that's not too ambitious, you know, that if we, if it's overly ambitious, people just go, oh, we'd never get there and yeah. you know, disengage. And if it's not ambitious enough, well, why would you bother? What's the big deal? You know, yeah. what's there to get excited about? So for me, leadership starts with an issue, but it 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 um, necessarily involves thinking about purpose and vision and about the the tension between them and uh, the notion of experimentation to to move in that desired direction, accepting that it's going to be a windy road. You know, it's not a linear, straightforward process. I think I that uh, um, my philosophy, as, as was Peter Vale's, is that uh, it's not, as we started this conversation, it's not always the only the responsibility of the people at the middle upper levels of a somewhat hierarchical organization. But what when I did a book in the 2000s where we focused on one person in a call center in a made-up uh, company. Yeah, yeah. And... Uh, we coached her uh, in, in the story, it was a novel, to be more observant, to believe what her eyes are telling her and her ears are telling her in a more way, and then get to the point. I, I wish I had this model in front of me when I was writing it, but now because she was ready to quit because she felt she was marginalized as they made some changes uh, to this uh, to the company and, and they were not getting input from the call center people and those were live calls they weren't just sales calls they were mm. hearing what their business to business clients were yeah, dealing yeah. with and it was really important intelligence so yeah. what i would see is if if dana my character really had access to the vision not just the, the poster on the wall but it was in the in the water in the conversation uh if she had uh and she had a strong feeling for the purpose. She was a smart woman. She knew what they were trying to do for their customers and to keep the business going. 
but it didn't seem to be reinforced by a new leader who came in, a new manager actually, and kind of wanted to, you know, turn everything upside down. And basically the goal, uh, my villain in this story was um, electronic purchasing and it was going to take the, the eyes ears right out of the picture, which now, but 14 years later or so, you can't even talk to a human being in the States if you want to deal with Amazon or anything else. So we saw that coming, but the sad, the sad part of it is that the people like her are in the tens of millions who uh, aren't getting that feel that you're offering uh, that there is a vision that they're working on. The company has a purpose. It somewhat aligns with their person, the practices they're doing. And because of that alignment, they can thrive. They can, get better at being a, she was very proud of what she could do on the phone. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And look, organizations consistently, when I talk to groups of staff or lower level managers, and you ask them about the issues and challenges and opportunities, they have so many ideas, so much intelligence, and it's largely untapped in the organization because, you know, it doesn't feel like a safe environment to express these views. You don't know mm -hmm. how they'll be heard upstairs. But there's something here, Dave, I think that's worth mentioning, and that is when we're talking about vision, often that's uh, attached only to the organisation as a whole. You know, it's the organisation's vision, whereas for your call centre person, she might have had a vision about how, her, how she'd like to see her centre operating within the larger, you know, organisational orbit. So within the larger corporate vision, she's got a purpose, she's got a a vision and you know as long as it's not completely out of whack with organizational one which it might be a bit problematic if it is but nonetheless for her to sort of think about well, what's true for me and also kind of going to be okay that I'm prepared to go to in the organizational environment I can think about my vision for how I want us to interact within my center you know what would that look like how's that different from how we are now and how can I and my colleagues co-create that? So that's leadership mode intervention at a very local level within the context of a larger organization. Now, have, you must have read my book then. I mean, you've got my, you've got my <laughs> I story think we're on now. the same track. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was my vision and, and purpose in introducing uh, that sort of character in a, in a way, because that was the pitch. It was actually uh, Quality Press, ASQ Quality Press that published that book. And we thought, uh, my co-author and I, Steve Cavalry, thought that uh, one thing that was a genius of the quality movement uh, from Duran and Deming and, and Crosby and all the others was that they basically believed in the front line. They believed in the person doing yeah. the work as the primary source of intelligence and quality solutions. And uh, we wanted that to be reflected in this, uh, this book. But um, yes, absolutely. And now I'm looking at the hundred or so people who I've had this kind of conversation with from different places where they're practicing, some in manufacturing, some in the, these huge insurance companies we have here and, and, uh, and some in the, in the small business practitioners. And A, I'm attracted to them because I get that feeling there's a lot more energy there yeah, than yeah. others in their, in their group. Uh, someone mm -hmm. popping out of ESPN, which is our huge sports network right here next to my hometown. And a former student of mine who just pops out of this huge company and shows this real courage uh, during the COVID year mm -hmm. to help people adjust. She's an OD practitioner within the company. And like, 
wow you know so yeah. that that, that uh, comes through in every case um as it yeah. is with you uh, let it, me it's tell you isn't it dave yeah it's it, yeah, but so I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate I, I, to no, I was going to say, I'd like you to have more to say, because I know I'm now talking too much, but I, I am curious, after you share your thought then, uh, what drew you into this work, and why is this your passion? Let's start okay. with your reaction to my diatribe on the people well, who have that extra spark. <laughs> well, I, I wanted to say that I've had the opportunity over the last year or so to contribute to a couple of doctoral in leadership, doctorate in leadership programs in the U.S., Students have gone, hey, we really like this approach because we can see in the organisations we work in, and they were mainly sort of experienced managers who were undertaking studies, you know, mm -hmm. perhaps in We can see in our organisations, there's all this. Okay, you, you're back. You froze for a second there. Oh, okay. Sorry. Sorry about that. I'm actually in my son's bedroom because my wife is teaching in another part of the house where the internet connection is. Oh, <laughs> well, it's anyway. okay right now. Let's capture that next thing. You were talking about working uh, with yep. these uh, so, practitioner so managers the, who are in the doctoral programs. Yes. Yeah, so the people in the doctoral programs who are practicing managers, many of them as well, can see the applicability of these sort of ideas that leadership mm -hmm. is something that can be practiced by anyone at any level but unfortunately in the scholarship community in the leadership studies community this is not a well-developed idea there's not a lot of literature about it not a lot of evidence about it most of the research is about formal leaders or you know effective and ineffective leaders or qualities of leaders and that's where the paradigm sits. There's, there's actually a competing paradigm, which is about leadership as practice, but only as a collective practice. Yes. And that opens the opportunity that individuals can make choices about how they intervene, whether they intervene from a, a leadership stance or perhaps a more management one. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the area there to be explored within the leadership studies and OD scholarly communities, and I hope Dave into this podcast and things that might be an interesting area to have a look at but Most definitely um, yeah uh joe raylan here in the states is uh doing quite a bit of, of leadership as practiceful and he's very much involved in this notion of distributed leadership you know arising from anywhere and that it's the organization whether it's a team or a larger entity that indeed is uh practicing and i'm learning as I go from what Joe's doing, I'm also uh, going to uh, be in a conversation about this very thing. Uh, uh, the Scottish collective uh, collective leadership organization is fostering something called campfires, uh, which are going to be the first and second days of September, which you might want to look at. And the piece Indeed. that I'm doing by wonderful coincidence, because we've never met, is that I'm, I, I see it as a controversial issue that uh, while we're, you know, yay, good, we're taking leadership away from traits and, and uh, great man studies, but uh-oh, we're losing the individual in mm. this notion of it being collective. So my question for the conversation that I will um, foster, hopefully, is just what we're talking about now. What about, what about, what, what, what can someone do in in this shift if the shift is going to happen and i believe it will uh to develop themselves so they can be instrumental 
from whatever desk they're seated, seating or whatever camera they're looking into in the conversations that lead to, uh, to change, positive change. Well, I, I love hearing that, Dave, and I, uh, I must tune into the campfire conversations because um, I think we're, we're coming from a very similar place. Mm -hmm. you, you did ask me about what, what led me into this sort of work. Yes, Perhaps if yes. I can briefly respond to that. Uh, look, initially, I started my working life as a health services planner and then ended up some years later in the Australian Broadcasting Corporation managing community relations, which was mm. a bit of a shift. But anyway, but in both these large complex organisations, in one, there were all sorts of health professionals. In the other, lots of broadcasters, people with massive talent and contributions to make, but their voices won't, weren't being heard when it came to organisational change. And I was thinking, well, what's going on here? What are the dynamics at play? Why is this not happening? I subsequently went off and studied organisational behaviour and mm -hmm. developed more of a theoretical grounding, got interested in leadership, but wanted to link it back to this sort of dynamics in organisations and, mm. you know, get away from the great person thing. And so that's that was what sparked my initial curiosity. And, you know, 25 years on, I'm still fascinated by working in this field. What I, what I, what I, I love a lot about what you just said, Don, but what I particularly love and, and put a big underscore is 25 years and I'm still pursuing the, mm. the grail, if you will, the, you know, you've got some models, you're getting some, you know, you're codifying some of your lessons as we are at this moment, but do you feel that you've already got the cap on it? You're done. And now you just need to put it on the shelf and, and scale it. Or are it's, you still curious? <laughs> are you still tweaking? It's a lovely question. It's a lovely question, Dave. And look, I am definitely a practitioner. I will be, learning, discovering, playing around, making mistakes, maybe having a few wins till the day I am sort of no longer capable of doing this work, but I'll be continuing the practice yeah. as long as I can, because like any practice, it comes from a place of, you know, deep desire to kind yes. of get better and to learn and to sort of make a difference. And uh, so like you, I admire anybody who's got a practice they're passionate about and wants to pursue it in that way. So I'm just... I'm a fellow travel, traveler with other practitioners in any field, and that's where I intend to stay. I love it. I love it. And, uh, and I mentioned to you before we started recording that Peter Vale, who uh, was 83 when he passed away, but for his last mm -hmm. 20 years was uh, basically paralyzed from the waist down in a wheelchair. He never, that, that flame never flickered. He, mm -hmm. he had this huge interest in everything about organizations, but he like us, wanted to get to the individual, back to the individual okay. and what they do uh, to make a difference. So that kept him going right up until the week before he passed away. So well, we, we, you and I, <laughs> I'm 78, I, you're, you're much younger I, by appearance. We've, we've, you know, we're just going to keep doing this one way or another. When I was done as a tenured full professor, I thought, oh my goodness, I can't even think of teaching anymore because I'm, I don't carry that title. And then, then I realized, and Peter helped me see it. Wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. We just shift the way we teach and we keep on teaching. Why? Because we can't learn. If we don't learn something, we can't teach about it. So I am probing the nature of practice. And you are probing the nature of conversations leading to uh, leadership as a practice. I think it's a wonderful connection. I hope we can continue to stay in some con conversation. Yeah, I look forward to doing that, Dave, because it's, it's great to come across 
someone who shares a similar area of practice and who's, uh, you know, battling away with the same sorts of things, but keeping the spark alive. So thank you for the opportunity. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the Practice Podcasts, where we discuss practice with a capital P. If you'd like to hear more, listen in on Spotify, Automatic, and Apple Podcasts, or go to inactionresearch.com slash podcast dash page. And if you'd like to learn more about social inaction and the nature of practice, head over to inactionresearch.com for more information. Thank you for supporting this show. We look forward to hearing from you soon.